Father, we're grateful for this day. We thank you for the callings we have in this world to uh, love and serve you in our labor. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful to that and to prosper us in it. And we thank you for the leisure now that we have to continue these studies and reflect upon the great church that your son has uh, saved and is building. And we pray that with each of our studies, we would admire more uh, the wisdom of our triune God, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are accomplishing this great task and especially the work of the Spirit in the subjects we're taking up tonight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you've seen my email that uh, in God's providence, I have <laughs> great hopes to, in one felt swoop, uh, gain all the time I've lost by taking so long on these evenings. Um, so we're going to do um, dealing in church courts um, with respect to their actual practical fun functioning tonight. Then Sunday and the week, uh, the Sunday after, I'll be um, opening up the scripture for the sermon and we'll look at uh, the nature of church discipline through Paul's letter to the second letter to the Thessalonians. And the Wednesday in between, we'll do um, the uh, kind of context of church discipline or the character of uh, disputes uh, conflicts in the life of the church. Um, and uh, that will bring this section to a conclusion. So that's where I hope for us to go. Let's see what we can accomplish here uh, tonight. Um, what are the things that make for pra the practice of good government in the church? Um, we've already noted that the Presbyterian form of government um, is uh, belongs to the well-being of the church, not to the very being of the church. Um, but then we want to say, well, what what are elements are necessary for the achievement of that well-being? How does that well-being come to us through the rule of elders? And the first thing we notice, of course, uh, and I say this because I have to remind myself of it, since I find church government so interesting. Um, government is a part, not the whole, of the church. Um, there's much more to the church than government. But government is essential to the whole and is essential to all the other goods that come to us uh, through the Lord. But the church is properly um, almost beyond uh, speaking and the richness of it. Uh, there's so many metaphors at work. Uh, the church is a bride. It is a family. It is a body with many members. It's a building, a house, a temple. It's a school of Christ. And it's a mission, uh, a militant mission of spiritual con conquest. All of those metaphors and more are uh, used. If you're interested in me vindicating that, you probably already know some of the texts, but I didn't want to take time to refer to all the texts 
tonight, but uh, I'll just give you that summary. But as we've said, um, there is a divinely appointed government, and um, our Book of Church Order in 1.7 reminds us that this scripture doctrine, doctrine of presbytery is necessary to the perfection of the order of the visible church, but not to its existence. Um, and we, you recall the statement I've referred to several times in Book of Church Order 2.2, um, that Presbyterians understand themselves to be a branch of the visible church, along with all who maintain word and sacrament in their fundamental integrity. That last section, 2.2, was first adopted in the revision of the book in 1879. And one of the great thinkers from that period on church government had this to say about the addition of that section to the Book of Church Order. He said, The doctrine of Ure Divino government by no means excludes evangelicals from a place in the true Church of Christ. This statement, thus, is not only important but very timely in the present age of the Church. It protects us on the one hand, uh, excuse me, it protects on the one hand the principle of Ure Divino, that is divine right, uh, against the unreasonable charge of high churchism. And on the other, it silences the clamor of papists and Campbellites about the sects of evangelical Protestantism. You see, we don't, we, we don't have a, a, a high tyrannical view of the government, nor do we have a, a sectarian view, but a, a properly situated understanding of the importance of government in the context of the larger visible church on earth. Second, uh, government is not everything, uh, but it's crucial to understand that it's government by deliberation and in the sunshine. Uh, by deliberation and in the sunshine. Uh, the government is a, a council of elders, an assembly of elders, reasoning from the scriptures. This shouldn't surprise us because virtually all of the New Testament letters are arguments. Uh, they're Paul setting before the church arguments to persuade them of the truth and to give them the capacity to defend them. And so you'd entirely expect that the council of elders, as they're trying to lead the church according to the word, would themselves be engaged in argument. Um, you see this beautifully in Acts uh, 15, 7 speaking about the council. After there had been much debate, then they come to a conclusion. That debate was not a bad thing. It wasn't uh, nasty disagreements. It was the vehicle by which they came to be of one mind with respect to what the Lord wanted. A council of elders is a body of finite knowers. They have limited perspectives. And they're seeking to understand the mind and will of Christ from his word applied to circumstances. A body has a greater chance of seeing the whole picture than one. And by listening to each other and considering carefully, they come to have a bigger picture of the scripture and uh, 
the world around them. I often use this illustration when I'm uh, helping couples prepare uh, for um, marriage. I hold something like this up as I'm standing over it, and I say, what do you see? And uh, they say, well, a, a circular thing, slightly concave. And I say, no, I, I see a, a line slightly bending. You see, from my point of view, it's hardly even a disc. And we could sit there and argue, oh, no, it's a circle concave. No, it's a line bulging. But if we can talk to each other, all of a sudden the world becomes three-dimensional. And we could understand that we're contributing part of our knowledge the whole, and so are they, and that's needful because of the fact that we're finite knowers. This isn't in the least a suggestion of relativism. There is an objective world. It can be known in its objectivity, but limited knowers are integral to one another to try and help to understand the richness of the world, and that's what the Council of Elders is about. Each one has something to contribute. And as Presbyterians, we know that each elder in every court, session, presbytery, assembly, has been put there by God. That's what the scriptures teach. God has appointed each one, the members, just as he has willed. And um, the, uh, that's the point of Paul in Ephesians. The officers of the church are gifts from Christ. They're there by his appointment. Now, here, we walk by faith, not by sight. It doesn't always look like all the other elders are there by Christ's appointment, reflection of his wisdom. Sometimes we may wonder about that, but we embrace the truth of it by faith and act upon the truth of it. It's perfectly true. We know in Providence there are wolves in sheep's clothing, there are folks who aren't as competent as they could be and, and, and so on, so that that person may be appointed by Christ as a trial for the court rather than an encouragement to it. But the point is those trials are wholesome. They're good. We, we learn to bear with one another in love. We l learn to speak the truth but in love, trying to be persuasive according to heavenly wisdom, which is peaceable according to James. So, um, this uh, we, uh, it means that we come to the court knowing that we're called there to deliberate, and I don't uh, <laughs> lean back from using the word argue. We're, we're there called to argue, to set for, try and grasp the truth, but it means we do it in charity with a charitable appreciation of what Christ intends for the court. Um, as I already mentioned, the 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen passage. Um, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And this truth we embrace by faith. Now, the, uh, of course, the majority must uh, rule in the council the Assembly of Elders. There has to be some decision made, and it's a majority decision. But, and here's one of, I think, the finest statements Stuart Robinson ever made. Uh, 
But the Presbyterian Church does not hold the theory that majorities are wise and should rule, but that the Church comes to see together the mind of Christ by counseling together in love, while from practical necessity the majority prevails when there is a difference in judgment. This difference of judgment, after deliberation, is simply a failure of men to work out the rule of Christ. And the members of the majority ought to grieve more over the difference in judgment remaining than to rejoice over carrying the decision in their way. Um, that really captures beautifully the spirit of uh, the Presbyterian system. And further, this deliberation, here's my second part, it is, it's government by deliberation and in the sunshine. This deliberation should be, for the most part, before the watching church and before the watching world. Preliminary principle number eight, recall, says that ecclesiastical discipline must be purely moral and spiritual in its object and not attended with any civil effects. And, and here's the point, it can derive no force whatever but from its own justice, the approbation of an impartial public, and the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church. Three parts for our government to be effective. It has to be just in and of itself. It has to be able to be seen to be just by a watching world, and it requires the blessing of the head of the church. Those three things. Uh, and, and that's the only way that a moral and spiritual power can have any effect. Now, consider why, um, apart from a, a specific action to the contrary, sometimes courts do need to go into closed session, but you consider why the meetings of the session, presbytery, and general assembly should be public. It's because of this moral, spiritual, ministerial character of church government. The Lordship of Christ, administered by elders through the word, received by the power of the Spirit, in good conscience with the people, without coercion, physical force as with the state, or the demands of an implicit faith, as is the case with Rome. For that to be true, it's got to be publicly available. The mechanism whereby it comes about and the outcome. And Paul makes the point about his own ministry in this way in 2 Corinthians 4.2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, to, to require uh, the folk that we care for in government to have an implicit faith that because the session said so, here's what it must be, is according to our Confession of Faith in 220, uh, uh, to require an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also.
Um, all the judicatories of our church hold open meetings, though they have a right to sit uh, in closed session if some necessary uh, circumstance requires it. But in some, Presbyterian policy places a premium on what in the civil sphere is called sunshine law. That is, that things be done in the open for all fair-minded observers to see and approve of. This is grounded in our preliminary principles, as we've seen. So, too, this policy is grounded in our doctrine of sin. Even the best of men, in the exercise of their office, may be tempted to sin. And thus, a public proceeding helps to hold them accountable. Historically, the Presbyterians have rejected anything like a star chamber. Uh, I don't know whether that a historical reference to the uh, period of the Westminster Assembly where um, the crown held a private and secret court to rule on matters and uh, it was greatly hated by the Puritans and rightly so. Uh, Thirdly, um, here we're, we're following, recall, the list of things that are part of the good functioning of government. Um, We have a right understanding of submission, error, and minorities. A right understanding of submission, error, and minorities. Um, we've talked about already uh, how members are to uh, submit to their leaders, but of course the officers make a promise to submit to the brethren in the Lord. Ruling elders, deacons, and pastors all make such promise with respect to their respective courts. Um, you recall Hebrews uh, thirteen seventeen in general, obey your leaders and to submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. But of course, this is not an unlimited submission, as Peter and John said to the authority, the church authorities of their day. Uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And of course, they're appealing to common sense. Of course, you can't follow this worldly authority if if you believe God has called you to do otherwise. Um, so, um, yet we know it's our calling to submit to the brethren in any case other than where uh, they require me to do something uh, that I know is sin, or they forbid me from doing something that I know God requires me to do. As as we did earlier, I want to just repeat this distinction. My promise to be submissive to the brethren means, in the first place, formal submission. That is, that I'm willing to hear and weigh carefully and fairly what it is that the elders are saying to me in in the councils. And uh, then a material submission that I'm willing to comply uh, to join a consensus on a matter if uh, I see that um, this is what the Scripture calls us to do. And um, we're going to talk about party spirit, but you can see how utterly alien that is to party spirit. If I don't come to every session of the court with the understanding that God, by the power of the Spirit, may move through the arguments of my brothers to show me something that I did not agree with before. If I don't come with that spirit, I'm violating the whole nature of our government. 
Um, well, we know the church courts may err. Uh, it is, in fact, the doctrine of our church that they do. There aren't many that churches that have as a principal point of their doctrine to remind everybody that their governmental councils are finite. But that's what Confession of Faith 31.3 says. All synods or councils, since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, many have erred, and therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Today, if people are troubled by uh, a, an act of their local government or troubled by their denomination's uh, government, they just leave. They just go find someplace else. Um, often, uh, this is tied up with autocratic leaders. They say, uh, this is our church. Or the pastor says, this is my church. Thus, believers abandon their Christ-given responsibility to be a means whereby Christ corrects and strengthens his church. Believers are a crucial part of that. A pastor should never say, this is my church, but rather this is the congregation that I serve for Christ's sake. And every one of the elders ought to have the same sensibility. This is not my church. This is our church. This is the congregation that I serve. Alternatively, uh, or excuse me, the alternative is often that the congregation <laughs> adopts this principle. This is our church. And they don't want some minister or elders to come and tell them how it ought to be. This is equally mistaken and destructive. Leaders who seek to bring biblical reform are thrown out because they have violated the way we do or see things in our church. Presbyterians have to come to every matter of church government with the practical conviction that this is Christ's church and that we have the privilege to participate in the ways in which Christ governs that church in this world. The congregation belongs to Jesus. It is his. Leaders and people are his servants in the church for his glory and for the good of the church. Crucial to this is the character of dissent. Um, we know that we're not all going to see things the same way. And yet a dissenting person has a very high calling to dissent in a Christ-like way. It must be the fruit of quiet courage, grounded in humble conviction. And thus the dissent ought to have a certain reticence and humility. Dissent has to be able to distinguish when the gospel is at stake and when it's just a matter of uh, some practical judgment where fallible people can err. Of course, when the gospel's at stake, 
that ascent has to take a different character, and we're going to talk about that. But you think of Jude 3, that we're in fact urged to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. Uh, but of course, there are all kinds of things that don't uh, in, uh, involve the essence of the faith. Um, it's my judgment um, against someone else's judgment about what the scripture says or what the facts are. Um, and as long as we act in good faith, we, we should be able to live with each other on that. If I'm a dissenter, I have an obligation to deliberately uphold, to work to uphold government in general while I'm dissenting against a particular decision. I have the duty simultaneously to uphold, the, if it's on the session with respect to the congregation, if I'm a dissenter, I have a duty before the congregation to uphold the government of the session and call folk to listen carefully to what they say, while at the same time I have the right to explain my dissent. Um, uh, Robert Dabney uh, urged it nicely that um, we ought, all officers ought to have uh, a presupposition with respect to those who may be opponents. We ought to accord those who differ with us or supposed to differ with us in opinion, the same honor and intention to do right that we claim for ourselves. Now, um, this um, includes seeking redress through the Christ-appointed order. Um, right now, I serve on the Standing Judicial Commission. Uh, I very rarely, in fact, I'm not sure I've ever filed a dissent in a case. The way the commission works, you have the commission's decision, and then individual co commissioners can file concurring or dissenting opinions. Um, I uh, have uh, had the unhappy task of um, putting together and uh, just filed yesterday, finished it. It was a, a, not a pleasant task, uh, a dissent to file. But the point is this, um, that that is part of the order that our Lord has appointed, is that um, we can move from the lowest uh, level of government, the session, through the presbytery and bring a matter that, doesn't find solution in the uh, session to the presbytery, we can bring a matter that doesn't find solution to the presbytery, to the General Assembly. And within each of those courts, and we'll see in just a moment, our Book of Church Order deliberately lays out a procedure where a person can have their dissent or protest filed in the records of the court. And I'll try and explain why that's the case. Um, but here I want to note that where we're not required to do something that Christ forbids or to fail to do what Christ requires, we have an obligation to passively submit to the majority. 
We don't have the obligation to say we agree with it. We, have an ob- we, we, we don't have the obligation to keep silent. We can peaceably explain our view, but at the meantime, we have the obligation uh, to passively submit. Um, Robert Dabney uh, was involved in a number of controversies in the life of the church, none bigger than the old school, new school division um, in uh, the uh, early, late 1850s and uh, early 60s. Um, And he was describing um, how a minority ought to respond to the majority. He said this, We believe these measures are wrong, even unconstitutional. We testify against their wrong, but we leave the responsibilities of them to the majority who enacted them and whose will must prevail in all Republican bodies. Their wrongfulness does not compel us to separate from this, which we believe to be a branch of the true Church of Jesus Christ, though in this matter erring. We exercise our Christian liberty in testifying against her fault, but we go on, as before, to labor for her good. For though in fault, she is Christ's bride. Uh, I think that's a beautiful statement of the sensibility that uh, needs to animate uh, the elders of the church. Um, the um, uh, I better not take the time to pursue that further. So, you have a, a right to bear testimony uh, to your views, uh, but the point here is you're, it's not for the purpose of condemning others, nor for personal vindication, but it's to clear your conscience and for the good of the church to maintain the unity of the church. Now, this often causes uh, eyebrows to be raised up to the ceiling when I tell people that the right to protest or dissent from a decision of a church court is for the sake of the unity of the church. People immediately decide that's a divisive thing. But here's the point. I, um, am I still on? Okay, I, I got a message from Zoom that I, th- I was being shut off. But <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Maybe the the uh, uh, cyber guys are after me because they don't like the things I'm saying or something. Um. All right, now I've forgotten what I was talking about. Um. The uh, um, I say that dissent, public dissent, is for uh, unity. I have an obligation, even if I argued, and I think I, I was right, but failed, I have an obligation to passively submit. But that could look like I agreed with the majority. And that would not be fair to me. So I can go along and do that so long as you saw, heard the way Dabney spoke of it. Uh, we exercise our liberty in testifying against her fault. And that liberty makes it possible for me to remain united to that body. 
without it looking as if um, I agreed with what they were saying. It's so it's unity, but it's also for the good of the church. Um, we've had a number of times where a protest or a dissent at one point in the life of a court uh, comes to bear fruit later as that point of view is endorsed and it becomes the majority view. It was a seed planted that finally brought out, brought about a revolution in the court's understanding of itself and its responsibilities. I have another uh, lovely quote, but I, I, I'm not going to take the time on this. Uh, so, um, Book of Church Order 45.1, you need to be aware of. It says, any member of a court who had a right to vote on a question and is not satisfied with the action taken by that court is entitled to have a dissent or protest uh, recorded. Um, the, uh, it, it isn't open-ended forever. There, there's a time limit. You've got 30 days following the meeting of the court uh, to file it. Um, and there are qualifications, 40-5. Uh, I'll just roughly give you, a, I'm not going to go through all the text. You can look at it yourself at your leisure. A dissent is usually just me recording that I disagree and because X, Y, Z. A protest can be a much more solemn and formal thing with a fairly developed argument, and you have a right to have that entered into the record if you think it's so important that people need to see all the reasons in play. But, as I say, there, must, there are qualifications. This is in 45.5. If a dissent, protest, or objection be couched in temperate language and be respectful to the court, it shall be recorded. And the court, if it wants to, can put an answer to a dissent or protest into the records along with it. So the court has a right to defend its decision in, uh, in the matter. And uh, that's the end of it. Um, Benjamin Morgan Palmer was one of the great figures in the history of 19th century American Presbyterianism. Um, here is a letter from him to a young man that he's trying to counsel about dealing with being in disagreement with the church court. It's lovely. Um, the, uh, he, the young man was getting himself worked up in a rather faithless way over the failings of the church. And Palmer wrote, urging him as follows, Survey calmly all the difficulties of your position. Decide prayerfully upon the course which you must take in surmounting them. Bring, you, bring your will firmly to bear on that chosen course, and then hold steady, waiting patiently while God and the truth and time carry you to a successful issue. Nothing is gained, but everything is lost by getting into a fume working yourself into a holy frenzy. It is well to have zeal, even a consuming zeal, but it is hardly modest to be more zealous than God himself. <laughs> um, well, um, then finally, uh, suppose we are required to do what Christ forbids. 
or forbidden from doing what Christ requires. We've expressed our dissent. Uh, we've sought through the pro proper means change peacefully, but we can't live in that situation. Uh, at that point, we have an obligation to peaceably withdraw. Um, th this was uh, a matter hammered out um, in the earliest uh, days of American Presbyterianism in 1758. There'd been a division and um, when they were able to come back together, they laid out a principle that they thought should inform it. Here's what the court adopted. When any member, or excuse me, when any matter is determined by a majority vote, every member shall either actively concur with or passively submit to such determination. Or, if his conscience permit him to do neither, he shall, after sufficient liberty, modestly to reason and remonstrate, peaceably withdraw from our communion without attempting to make any schism, provided always that this shall be understood to extend only to such determinations as the body judge indispensable in doctrine or Presbyterian government. That is such a sweetly balanced statement. You see, on the one hand, if I'm in a minority, uh, or, or when a decision is before the court, I either am in favor of it, actively concur, or I'm not in favor of it, uh, uh, so I passively submit. But if I can't passively submit, because it's something that required, requires me to disobey the Lord, then first I have a time which I can try and persuade the court that this is so important that it's going to divide at least me from the church. And the court then has a duty, that's what this last bit is, to consider again, is this really worth insisting upon? Because it's going to drive this brother and maybe others away. And maybe the court would say, well, no, maybe we can f figure out a different way to sort this out that would accommodate everybody's conscience on the matter. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I've been involved in uh, uh, church controversies since uh, the middle 70s. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was going to be my life's calling. Um, but very early on, I learned of this quotation, and it, it, it's been a, a North Star to guide through things actively concur, peaceably withdraw, or if conscience forbids neither, or excuse me, actively concur, passively submit, and if conscience forbids either to peaceably withdraw. Um, the, um, well, um, uh, there's some other lovely quotes here, but I'm going to press on. I think it's probably, uh, clear enough uh, to you. Um, the means to modestly reason and remonstrate, well, it means to, for example, from a session, 
to bring the matter before a presbytery, for the presbytery to bring the matter before the assembly. The assembly, it means that what decision is made at one assembly, but you should hang in there and try and put petitions up to the next assembly, to ask the assembly to consider the matter again, and so on. There ought to be this wonderful persevering character to it, because at the end of the day, it's not that I win or my side wins, but that if I really have understood the will of Christ in the matter, it's so that Christ's will wins for the good of the church. And I have to be willing to suffer for that, if if that's what Christ calls me to do. Um, the uh, And the point is this, that it's not a bad thing that these appeals should happen. It's a good thing. Um, in the hands of a godly elder, it's a Christ-given remedy for conflicts uh, in the church to help the church live in purity and peace. So... Um, uh, 33 years, we, we've never had a complaint against our session. And I take that as a gift from the Lord. But we've always had the point of view that if any of the brothers thought we had done something wrong, they were perfectly free. They were even encouraged to take it to the presbytery. It would not be giving up our side or uh, an, an insult to the brothers or anything else. We are committed from the beginning that that would be, we, we would support it fully and gladly give an account of ourselves to the broader uh, church. And our, our presbytery has had very few cases go, uh, but the same sensibility belongs to the presbytery. Um, so, all right, I'll stop there and let me pause for a moment and see uh, whether you have questions or comments on anything thus far. All right. I will. Yes. Uh, this is Paul. Um, I'm just curious, is this what you're teaching tonight and what you taught last Wednesday night? Is it something that's taught in, in most MDiv programs? No, it's not. Um, the polity course in most MDiv programs is tacked on at the very end of the course uh, uh, of the curriculum. And it's basically a study of the book of church order of whatever church you're going to so you can pass the exam uh, of the presbytery. Uh, there's just no concern for the... Uh, what I've been trying to show that is that historically Presbyterianism it has a robust theology of the government and f functioning of the eldership. It, it, and it, it's deep and rich and rooted, rooted in all kinds of very important principles about the Christian life. But there's just no patience for it. There's no... It just, you know, what you said tonight, I defy anyone to say is not eminently reasonable and wise and yet uh, it, it strikes me as very sad um, that it's not taught and it seems like it must just um, be picked up along the way along with the mix of how we deal with 
problems in our, you know, see it in politics and in other venues, which is obviously very unfortunate. Yep, I think that's true. Well, let me press on. This government, fourthly, is for the common good, not party spirit. The power to govern is not for private good. The power to govern is for the common good under God. This is absolutely contrary to a party spirit. Our English word heresy comes from a Greek word that sounds very similar. Um, and it, uh, although it came in Christian theology to apply to defects in government, originally the word referred to an unjustified party or group, um, sometimes, uh, in fact, translated party or sect, a, a caucus. Um, and uh, this was troublesome to Israel. Um, and uh, the... Um, so, for example, the word is used in Acts 5.17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The word translated party is uh, this word, uh, erasis. And th those parties, you recall in the New Testament, are at odds with one another the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and so on. And um, it provoked uh, violence. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, so you see um, in Acts 15.4, uh, the, uh, those who come into Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, the, these, these uh, Paul and Cyrus the missionaries. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders were gathered together. So it, these are believers, but they still had a party that they were a part of. And that caused a division in the church. Paul, <laughs> with great irony, you know, uses the known characteristics of a party spirit for its own cause in Acts 23. Now, when Paul, he was brought before the council, when Paul perceived that one part were the Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And there was a great clamor, and some of the scribes and Pharisees stood up and sharply contended. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune that was guarding Paul, afraid that he'd be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to get out and take him away. That's party spirit, and that's absolutely destructive. Paul was very careful to repudiate the charge that the way, as it was called, the Christians, the way was a party in Acts 24, 13. 
It is not a sect. He says it's nothing other but the fulfillment of the uh, faith of our fathers. Um, parties are, in fact, according to Paul, a work of the flesh, Galatians 5.19. The worst works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. There's the party spirit. That's quite a list. Party spirit does not keep good company. Idolatry, sexual immorality. But there are very few people in the church today who understand that's where that belongs in the list. Uh, Paul warns them, people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, well, if we had the time, I'd love to read from, to you from George Washington's farewell address in 1796. Uh, maybe I'll send it out to you later on. It is a profound warning uh, against a party spirit with respect to the new nation. And the warning is fully applicable uh, to the church. Party allegiance corrupts the functioning of an assembly of elders. One comes to the meeting of elders with current convictions always. But one must be committed to listening to the debate. And if compelling arguments are set forth contrary to one's views, it is a duty before God to change one's position in the light of the deliberations. This stance is essential to the fun functioning of a deliberative assembly that biblical Presbyterianism holds forth as liable to direction through reasoned biblical argument and the immediate work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those in the assembly who must decide. You see, that's the dynamic of the government of the church. And a party spirit uh, um, completely, um, oh, what's the phrase? Uh, um, it, it's an assault on the work of the Spirit of God. We're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's profoundly grievous to the Holy Spirit. And so I, I, I have been involved in controversies, as I've said, in the church, but I have never been part of a party in the church. The PCA came into existence with parties. There were four groups. They knew what they didn't like about the old church, but they weren't too sure they liked each other once they didn't have a common enemy. And uh, we've had, and right now we're troubled by parties. Um, but in any case, uh, I think it is um, utterly alien to the spirit of our government. Fifthly, the government has to be decent and in order. Uh, here is the place of parliamentary law. At our General Assembly, one wonderful fellow used to uh, sit up at the front with an overhead projector, and he would draw cartoons during the assembly that would be broadcast. And regularly, he would draw a cartoon of people standing and shouting and waving, and underneath he would put Acts 19.32. Then some were shouting one thing, and some another, 
for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. <laughs> uh, that's the life text for general, general assembly participants. But um, we in the tradition in America have the wonderful gift from the Lord in his providence of Robert's Rules of Order. Um, Robert's rules are to govern each one of our courts. It governs the session, it governs the presbytery, it governs the general assembly. Uh, the sessions are usually small enough that the level of formality that Roberts requires is often not necessary and that isn't essential to it. But especially as you go up, the larger the presbytery, the greater formality, the general assembly couldn't function without Roberts rules. But they're designed to allow the will of the majority to express itself as the act of a deliberative body while preserving the rights of a minority to be heard, to attempt rational persuasion, and to bear conscientious witness to its dissent, all while preserving the peace and unity of the court. I, I think that perfectly encapsulates uh, the value of Roberts. The, the core of Roberts' rules, as, as they note in the preface, is a little more developed than what can be known by just applying ordinary common sense. With this in view, when in doubt, if you're involved in a court, let common sense inform what you decide to do, because nine times out of ten, if you're acting fairly and in good faith and charitably, you, you'll find your way to what Roberts would have wanted from you. The rules of parliamentary law are constructed to provide a careful balance of rights, the rights of the majority, the minority, especially a strong minority. Uh, it's a means of appropriately protecting all of these rights um, that... Uh, Otherwise, we would degenerate into a mob. Um, there's a, a sometimes um, people um, say, "Well, why can't it be by consensus? Why shouldn't it be that we just all agree? Uh, we serve the same Lord. We have the same Bible, the same spirits at work." But it's important to see that um, this is. Uh, ends up being a kind of tyranny um, that people will not be able to express themselves if, there, if, if you set a rule that the session can only act by consensus. That means, in practice, either it will never act or it will always act with someone being hypocritical and not having shared what they thought was the right way to go but we're afraid to do so because it would spoil the uh, consensus. And I've known many sessions that have acted that way and were profoundly incapacitated by it. Um, the, um, um, so um, each person involved in the, uh, a decision uh, has a right to make the maximum effort to have his position declared the will of the presbytery to the extent that it can be tolerated 
in relationship to the need of the body to act. Thus, the presbytery is to acknowledge that the right belongs not only to a due respect to others, but more profoundly in the conviction that it's a respect for the Lord who has placed each member in the body for his purpose. And so we have an obligation to be patient with each other and listen fully to the minority, willing to be persuaded if we can. But then, of course, the minority has to acknowledge that at some point a decision has to be made. Uh, There's a great saying that's widely used, at least in our circles, and I know in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the moderator makes the observation, well, I think just about everything has been said on this subject, but not everyone's had a chance to say it yet. Would anyone else seek the microphone? <laughs> uh, those are great moments. Um, the um, Well, uh, fundamentally, then, under the rules of parliamentary law, the presbytery is a free agent, the free... It's free to do what it wants to do with the greatest measure of protection for itself and for the consideration of the rights of its members. Um, And uh, it it is really, as I say, a gift of God's providence, and um, it ought to be embraced. Now, Robert's Rules, has the official version of it is is revised every 10 years. We've just had a new revision come out, and it's it's come to be a relatively relevant, robust book. Um, here's the current version. It's a little, little bitty book <laughs> by the size of its cover, but you see it's a rather robust book. And that can be daunting, uh, but the point is uh, that there are long discussions in that, uh, elaborating on points the fundamentals of parliamentary law are relatively uh, simple, and you can get abbreviated guides. Our General Assembly bookstore has a little bit of paperback. Um, let's see if. Oh, well, I, I can't see mine uh, anymore. But, but I've been at this long enough that I don't need any of them because I, the rules just st- stick in my brain. Well, let's conclude here briefly. Uh, debate, rightly understood, is an essential element of making rational decisions of consequence by intelligent people. A deliberative assembly, uh, in a deliberative assembly, debate applies to discussion on the merits of a pending question. That is whether the proposal under consideration should or should not be agreed to. That the right of debate is inherent in such an assembly is implied by the word deliberative. And the duty to seek to achieve a consensus through debate is well grounded in scripture precept and example. You know, of course, uh, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, iron sharpens iron, Isaiah 1 Uh, has the Lord inviting us, uh, uh, come now, let us reason together. Jude 3 has us contend firmly uh, for the faith. Um, 
Now, I gave you a little thing I worked up many, many years ago called 20 Principles of Effective Argumentation. And uh, I think there are things that could be helpful to you there. We just don't have time, I'm afraid, to, even though it's somewhat entertaining to go over. But let me just say this about what you have. Every part of the um, title of it is important. When I say effective argumentation, I'm not talking about winning, but I'm saying principles that are likely to establish the truth with integrity. I'm talking about argument, though. That is, there really are different views. It's not just sentiments, dispositions, feelings. There are different propositions held, and they're being brought into relationship to one another to try and find out whether there's anything common or some third way that we can find. The goal is not victory, but persuasion. Uh, and we realize that uh, persuasion is uh, a complicated business. There are logical factors. There are psychological factors. But the point is, uh, the, the, the persuasion that we're looking for must have integrity. That there's a wholeness, a conjunction between the inner and outer man. The goal is to persuade with the integrity of all parties preserved. And in some ways, it's just a simple use of the golden rule. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Now, Robert's Rules of Orders is very uh, careful to establish decorum in debate, and that decorum begins with the level of formality. Now, the session, as I say, doesn't need to do this, but uh, I, I know uh, I've been a part of Potomac Presbytery forever. I know most of those men, from, <laughs> and uh, we used to say father, fathers and brethren whenever we started a speech. Uh, it was a Southern tradition, and uh, I used to always think of myself as one of the brethren, but now I'm uh, one of the fathers, and it doesn't feel all that appropriate. But uh, in any case, nevertheless, a young man who may be half my age and half my experience, if he's chosen to be the moderator, I address him as Mr. Moderator. Um, and that level of formality actually helps to um, provide a framework within which you can have serious debate. Um, the uh, uh, proper decorum means to uh, act in an orderly and cordial manner. You wait for your turn to speak. Um, you speak uh, in a way reflecting the integrity and dignity of other uh, people. You confine your marks to the pending question, not wandering off to talk about other things that you'd like to. And you can never attack another person's motives. Um, the, uh, you can't make a statement about another person that alleges what would be censurable activity of anyone. Uh, you can't characterize another's views in an uncharitable fashion. 
um, the, um, you can condemn the consequences of a position in very, very strong terms, but you cannot condemn personalities. And under no circumstances uh, can a person attack or question the motives of another. Well, there are other things. Those are some of the principal points uh, that I, I wanted you to uh, understand about this. Um, but let me, um, uh, yeah, I guess we don't have time. Let me, let me just conclude the, with these reflections. Um, 19th century old school Presbyterians had a great concern for fidelity to Christ in all matters. And thus the finest theologians of the day were deeply engaged in reflection and participated in, uh, in reflection on and participation with the great debates with respect to church government in their day. Today our great theologians, with notable exceptions, do not even attend the meetings of church courts. Perhaps lack of training, perhaps fear of alienated, alienating needed financial constituencies. But the church is surely the weaker for it. We ought to heed the example of our fathers. What was said of the older Scottish divines is certainly true of old school American Presbyterians. Quote, to them the church was as real, as essential, as important as Christ himself for their point of view, from their point of view, Christ and the church are mutually implicated ideas. We can no more conceive of Christ apart from the church that we, that we, than we can conceive of the church apart from Christ. Thus, Stuart Robinson could write a book, The Church of God as an Essential Element of the Gospel. There were, of course, debates reflecting some differences. But in the end of the day, quote, the studies which these divines prosecuted were Christological rather than ecclesiastical. When they argued about the church, it was in order to exalt Christ. We should seek the same spirit and by God's grace go and do likewise. Well, thank you for your patience this evening. I've run a little over on our time, but I'm happy to hang in there and answer any questions or hear any comments that you have to make um, about it. Anybody have something you're um, wanting to raise? Dave, I'm just curious without... Uh turning it into a lengthy history lesson, um, where you feel like things really went kind of down the tubes from this very robust sort of uh, engagement in, in church government to a, a much, where it became more of a chore or whatever. Um, right. Um, it uh, It's between um, 1870 and German higher criticism comes into the seminaries um, and it undermines uh, confidence in the scripture. Uh, 
and and a full-orbed commitment to all that it teaches. And at the same time, a kind of degenerate post-millennialism was at work, uh, both in the churches and in the population in general, where it was thought that uh, we could bring the kingdom of God on earth through our great endeavors, through industry, through politics. Um, but uh, this realized eschatology uh, was not um, kindly toward doctrinal distinctions. And so they thought, we'll just deal with practical feelings with respect to Christianity. Love of God, love of neighbor, God's the father of all men. And so both doctrinal distinctives and ecclesiastical distinctives became uh, passé and in fact understood to be a, uh, a defect in the life of the church that was inhibiting its worldwide advance. I'd say that's a summary of it, Colin. There's way more that could be said and um, many books written on the subject, but I think that's the heart of it. Thank you. Any other? Uh, please, if you will, um, we're uh, for our last meeting on this subject next Wednesday, um, I'm going to take you through that sort of conflict orientation. I don't think there's an hour there, uh, I, although I can make it that long. <laughs> but I, I, I would like you to have the opportunity, uh, and I want to keep a big portion of time if we need it. I'd like you to have the opportunity that any question you have about anything in the book of church order or anything about the philosophy of government or the practice of government what we've been talking about, I'd love for you to raise them. So please be thinking of that if uh, that would be useful to you. All right, brothers. Well, thank you. Oh, Deb, I didn't even know you were here. In the li is who? Well, I should. And Bonnie, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> I haven't been paying attention to my audience. Uh, brothers and sisters, thank you very much for being here. And uh, uh enduring this tonight, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Let me pray for us. Father, how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. What a marvel that we should be created in your image, that we should have the capacity for thought and speech, the capacity to know and to love, the capacity both to have an inner life, and yet a life in community. We thank you for all of the rich and wonderful ways uh, that these elements of who we are created in your image uh, find a place of flourishing in the life of the church. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our part in these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.